For this episode of Local Energy Rules, we head to the archives, replaying our inaugural interview with Anya Schoolman from January 2013 about the Mount Pleasant Solar Cooperative. Back then, the cooperative was already known nationwide for helping dozens of homeowners work together to go solar in their Washington, D.C. neighborhood and organizing them to fight for better solar policies. In the five years since, Anya's grown this single neighborhood group into a national organization, Solar United Neighbors, that has helped 80 solar buying cooperatives negotiate solar discounts in six states and installed over 10 megawatts of rooftop solar. They also organize members to fight for solar rights by defending net metering and other policies that enable distributed solar power. Let's take a trip back in time to hear how it got started and to see how Anya's strategy to get folks to join together, go solar, and fight for solar rights has built a growing national movement. Welcome to the first edition of Local Energy Rules, a podcast about people putting together great community renewable energy projects and examining how energy policies help or hurt the development of clean local power. My name is Wade Underwood. This week, John Farrell is joined by Anya Schoolman of the Mount Pleasant Solar Cooperative in Washington, D.C. Though the story of the cooperative is well known, John takes time to discuss their humble beginnings and the formula that has allowed the cooperative to grow into a citywide political organization. Here's John and Anya now. Anya, welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and I'm really excited to have you on for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, unlike a lot of the community energy projects uh, that we are focusing on in this podcast series, uh, yours is not necessarily uh, an or, sort of an organized legal entity having to confront a lot of the pro- problems of raising capital and hiring lawyers and all that kind of thing, but yet has been very successful. Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the Mount Pleasant Solar Co-op? So um, the Mount Pleasant Solar Co-op is really a group of neighbors that got together because they wanted solar. And what we do is um, help each other uh, get through the barriers to going solar, whether the barriers are uh, not having enough information or dealing with installers or um, dealing with our local government. And we share information, we have meetings in people's houses, and then we do a lot of deployment of solar on the residential. That's how we started. And we actually have installed solar on 10% of the houses in our neighborhood. Uh, which is more than a hundred houses, and um, we're, you know, just getting started. That's a remarkable achievement. I I had spoken with you, I think, uh, a few months ago, and I know that you were over seventy homes. But to get over a hundred and to more than ten percent of homes is quite an achievement. So first of all, congratulations. Um, Tell me a little bit more about, you know, in terms of what the cooperative, uh, not only as an information resource, but as I understand it, was also help, uh, able to help lower the price for solar for all of the participants. Well, you know, we, we keep trying new models. And when we, we started um, in, really, it was in 2006, late 2006, early 2007, uh, our idea was to do a classic bulk purchase model where you get a group of people together, do a single, get a single company, and supposedly through economy of scale, um, lower the price significantly. And when we tried that the first time around, it didn't work at all. We had over 80 houses, um, 45 of which 
ended up going solar when we did our first round in 2009. So what we found at that time was that was much more urgent and also much more important from a financial point of view to deal with our solar market and regulation of our solar market. And it's kind of complicated to explain, but what we discovered as we were trying to put the financing together was that even though we had a renewable portfolio standard uh, requiring solar to go on the grid, that renewable portfolio standard wasn't being implemented. In fact, our utility was paying the fine rather than playing in a market. And so that the incentive that should have been provided by that renewable portfolio standard to go solar wasn't available. And so instead of doing a bulk purchase, we shifted our focus to policy and we passed a law that doubled the fine on the utility, which then created an incentive um, through our solar renewable energy credit to go solar, which made all the difference in the world. So we started out with one idea, did a 180 turn, went from bulk purchase to policy, and we um, did the other, and that's what made it really economical and affordable to go solar when we started. But now, a couple years later, with the policy done, we have started to do bulk purchases. And what we've discovered is that um, actually about five houses is a really nice number because it's very doable, very manageable, um, not a lot of administrative overhead, and yet can significantly impact the price of, of the install. And although you mentioned it in the beginning, I want to remind people that we are, uh, we have no paid staff. We are all volunteers. And so one of the keys is sort of what's the sweet spot where your work can really pay off, but it doesn't become a full-time job. Right. With the, um, uh, with the bulk purchasing uh, stuff that you're now transitioning back to, have you seen a significant discount over what people would experience if they just went out and individually contacted solar installers? We have, although it varies. And um, what installers tell us in the market is that about a third of their costs are client acquisition costs. And um, so we feel as though by a big part of the process is not finding the client, but screening out the ones that either aren't serious or don't have a good location or a good roof or they're not ready or whatever. So by doing community meetings, really explaining to people what the steps are and what the costs are, um, we once we get a group together to purchase, they're 100% in. And so we've really lowered the cost of the installer. And we're seeing um, bids around $3 a watt in D.C. for a bulk purchase whereas a single home might be 450 a watt. So it's a fairly significant uh, difference in price. In my back of the envelope, that's about 30%, which is quite substantial. And that also fits with sort of what you would might expect because of what uh, installers are saying, how much that cost is to them. Yeah, that fits right in line with that. Now, uh, one of the things I thought was interesting in terms of what you said at the beginning, and I, I find that my initial report, I, I put out a report on community solar projects about two and two and a half years ago now uh, and featured the cooperative in it, uh, which at the time was, uh, I think, getting around to its uh, to the to the first uh, purchase and installation. And I remember I, f I featured that bulk purchasing 
component um, because I thought uh, not only the Mount Pleasant Solar Co-op, but others um, have been working on that particular strategy. What I think is really interesting is, is what you said about having to go focus on the policy, though, that, um, that to, in order to get your project happening, uh, that was something that was necessary. We actually just had a conversation with Bill Moyer, who works with the Backbone Campaign out in Washington, and they're finding as well for themselves that's, that policy seems to be the area they need to focus, that they get started on the nuts and bolts, but find that the policies that are set up around solar can often be a bigger barrier than some of those um, you know, sort of project, uh, the, the pieces of, of pulling the project pieces together. Um, are there other policies that you found that you've needed to work on, not just that, you know, the, the fine that the utility was paying instead of doing incentives for solar, but other barriers that you've encountered to making uh, solar happen for, you know, homes in your community? Yeah, it, 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 to me, it's sort of one of the big lessons for me and, and really what guides my whole approach to this issue is that project development, if you're, you're coming at it from sort of an advocacy perspective, needs, you need to do the policy. That anybody who thinks they can just stay in the project and never get into the policy, they're really naive. And inversely, I think it's equally unhealthy to do policy without the projects because then what you find is that people are passing these, you know, big targets, you know, renewable portfolio standard or whatever without any real understanding of how it impacts the market or whether it actually is being operationalized. And so what we really advocate is this connect, uh, like a cycle where we do projects, as a mechanism to do organizing, which leads to policy reform, which leads to more projects, which leads to more organizing, which leads to more policy reform. And that's exactly the cycle that we've been going through in DC, where we started first with just the idea of solar on some houses, so projects. That went to organizing, which was the neighborhood scale solar co-op, uh, which led to policy reform in 2008, which started to make it affordable and accessible to more people which then led us, again, to another cycle of projects, which was doing solar uh, co-ops in multiple neighborhoods in D.C., which then led us, again, to another round of policy reform in 2011, where we went in and we doubled the solar carve-out in our renewable portfolio standard. Uh, and that really made a huge uh, difference, ultimately, in terms of the the size that our market's going to be, the amount of solar, and also the price that we would be getting for our solar renewable energy credits. And now we're doing it again. So now we've built an organization that's citywide. We have a co-op in each political district in the city. So the district's divided into eight wards. We have a, an organization in each ward. So we have a political, we have a community organization in each political district. And now we're pushing for community solar legislation. We're really far along on it. So each cycle around, it's expanding access, increasing affordability, and broadening our base. So I really see it. Uh, the key is this magic. I, I always call it like, we call it our special sauce, but it's like connecting projects, policy, organizing, those three in a cycle. And, and there's no silver bullet because there's always, I'm sorry that's such a long answer, there's always these markets are very complicated and they're not set up for doing renewables. So there's many, many different levels of policy engagement. 
and it could be the the market incentives, it could be interconnection rules, it could be permitting. There's so many barriers that which when you set up a program, you want to think about multiple cycles where you're incrementally increasing your base, your power, your number of projects, and then policy reform, and then back again. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots groups. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute to go to ILSR.org and click on the donate button. That's ILSR.org. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. It might have been a long answer, but I think it's a very important lesson for folks who are interested <laughs> in working on this from a community perspective that you can't go into it was simply the idea of we're going to work on a project and we're going to just get something done. But that rather, if you, especially if you want to see that success replicated, there's going to be uh, a lot of different venues in which you have to approach um, that issue. Now, speaking of replication, you mentioned you've got cooperatives in all of the political districts in Washington, D.C. So obviously, even though your success in Mount Pleasant neighborhood with 10% of the homes having solar is quite remarkable, um, this is happening in other places. How successful have the, those other cooperatives been? And are you also seeing this concept spread outside of Washington? Um, well, across D.C., it's been a pretty huge success, although how successful it is in each neighborhood cooperative really depends on the particular leadership that emerges. And what we've seen, for example, down in Capitol Hill, which is another neighborhood in D.C., there's a co-op that's much, much bigger than our co-op, and they've done many more installs than we have, although the total percent, there, it's a bigger neighborhood, so I think the total percent is less, but it's a really great, exciting, vibrant um, uh, solar co-op down there. In some other neighborhoods, the focus has been different. For example, we have another, a number of neighborhoods which is, are predominantly low-income, and so in those co-ops, we've been really focusing on innovative financing, community solar, and uh, low-income projects to really make sure that it's inclusive of the people that live in that neighborhood. So they're, they're really uneven. But the exciting thing is that we, two years ago, all banded together under a single umbrella called DC Solar United Neighborhoods. And all the co-ops work together in terms of advocating for policy changes. Um, and it's kind of hyper-democratic. Like the backbone of our organization is a public listserv. And that's how most of our decisions get made. That's terrific, though. It's a great story. I, you know, I, 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 won't, I won't make you repeat the entire story since it's not only well-known in other media, but also on your website about how your son and another 
a teenager in the neighborhood got your cooperative started, um, and I would strongly uh, encourage people to go check out um, your website to learn more about that story. Um, but it really is a remarkable beginning uh, for just such a small, uh, uh, or such a small beginning uh, in one neighborhood to spread throughout the entire city. Um, you know, it's interesting in, in what you were saying about the different cooperatives and, and in particular the low-income neighborhoods. It sounds like, you know, maybe all of them have this similar philosophy of trying to smooth that um, that initial piece for people of getting them over the hurdles of their questions, screening out people who may not be suitable or might not have suitable locations for solar, the kind of thing that can help buy down the cost, but that you're dealing with a lot of different issues in different neighborhoods. And so it's important for folks to understand they may have to approach it in a different uh, from a different perspective. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think it was interesting. Um, somebody was asking my son, um, who he was 12 when he started this project, and he's now 18. And they said, well, what was your, what are your biggest lessons learned? And he said, he's a very scientific person. He's very, you know, rational, and, you know, you need to have an order or a formula for doing things. And he said, for him, one of the biggest lessons learned was that you didn't need to know what you were doing before you got started. And it was really through the process of doing it that you could figure out the next steps. And I think that's, it's, it's a, it, I was really taken by how he expressed that because I think that that's sort of been true in most of these examples where people decided they, they had a vision of what they wanted to do and then they got to work with the practical day-to-day uh, -day work of figuring out how to make it happen. And then when you have a different environment or a different community, you got to figure out what's the model that fits in your community. And that, that goes for technology, social organization, goals, structure, legal mechanism, etc. So there's a lot of divergence once you try to make it fit where you live. I, um, I really... I um, have come to respect not only the work that you've done in D.C., but I know that you have done a lot of work on issues of community energy uh, beyond there and would love to hear a little bit more about what you're working on uh, besides the Mount Pleasant and, and the D.C. Uh, solar cooperatives. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, I launched the Community Power Network, and the the initial thinking behind it was simply I need a better way to respond to the requests I'm getting from across the country for technical assistance. People were hearing about our work in Mount Pleasant and just calling me up or emailing me and saying, how do I do that here? And I was really overwhelmed with how do you share the information. And so the first step was the was Community Power Network was just trying to create a directory of groups that are sort of have similar kinds of ideas across the country and then pull together a resource where you can just find, you know, some of the basic info and guides. And that's been exciting and we've continued, I'm always, almost every week I learn about a new group, but now we're really trying to take it to the next level, which is how, what kind of technical assistance can we provide and what kind of, you know, proactive work can we do to really help groups and help states take renewable energy to the next level. So Community Power Network is, um, has been a, a process and it's evolving and it's sort of uh, been an interesting and exciting um, experiment. And we've tried a couple things uh, at, on some specific states near D.C. So recently we launched um, 
a Maryland Sun and a Virginia Sun network. And the idea is that the first step is just the communications hub. So a listserv where people can get online, find each other, where industry can talk to citizen activists, environmental groups can talk to um, regular people who maybe aren't motivated by climate change, but they're really motivated by renewable energy or self-sufficiency and have this sort of neutral meeting place. And so that's the thing I've been working on the last couple of months that I'm really excited about. Now, we're, we're just about out of time, but maybe you can tell folks where they can find the Community Power Network or learn more about it and how they can uh, get involved. Well, Community Power Network, communitypowernetwork.com. Google us, call us. There's contact information. If you have a group, we want people to be able to find your group. So please register and create a profile for your group. If you want to find out more about the work in D.C., uh, we have dcsun.org is a website or Mount Pleasant Solar Co-op. Uh, .org, I guess, Mount Pleasant Solar Co-op. If you Google that, you'll find our website. And anybody can reach me at my email, which is just anya.schoolman, just like it sounds, schoolman, at gmail.com. Although perhaps we should tell them, check the website first and see what you can learn before you email you because it sounds like you're getting an awful lot of requests already. Yeah, usually when people email me, I say, go read the website and then call, uh, email me back with specific questions. So I appreciate you putting that in first. <laughs> no problem. Anya, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thanks for um, thinking of me. That was John Farrell and Anya Schoolman. Anya co-founded the Mount Pleasant Solar Cooperative and continues to lead a citywide effort in Washington, D.C. to make solar more affordable and accessible to those that want it. For questions or comments, please email jfarrell at ilsr.org with Local Energy Rules podcast in the subject. John's Twitter handle is John F. Farrell. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for taking a trip back in time with us to listen to our 2013 interview with Anya Schoolman. You can learn more about her national efforts at solarunitedneighbors.org. You can read about their success in ILSR's Community Power Toolkit and see other tools to advance local clean energy, as well as listen to over 50 episodes of Local Energy Rules at ILSR.org. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.